Hello, and welcome back to the Bandit Fiction Podcast. I'm Daniel Hubbard, Podcast Manager at Bandit, and your regular host. If you don't know who we are, Bandit Fiction is a not-for-profit digital publisher run entirely by volunteers, and it's our aim to offer additional opportunities to new and emerging writers. We're always open to submissions, publish stories directly to our website multiple times a week, and offer free feedback to all submissions we choose not to accept. This is the second episode of this podcast. This month, we're bringing you three more stories. Bury the Box by Letitia Payne, Unpopular Opinions by Matthew Stanley, and The Thirteenth Story by Joe Gibbs. As usual, if you wish to read these stories yourself, or read more by other talented authors, all are freely available on our website, www.banditfiction.com. To round out today's episode, we're bringing you an interview with Joe Gibbs, author of The Thirteenth Story. As well as the talented authors whose work we feature on this podcast, we're only able to do what we do because of the support of you, our readers, listeners, and passionate community. Every story review and podcast like or share we receive are much appreciated, but we have to say a special thank you to our patrons, David Brown, Stephen Thompson, and Jake McAuliffe. If you'd like to find out how to become a patron, with special perks including exclusive discounts and being able to nominate stories for the podcast, just head over to www.banditfiction.com forward slash support. Now, we'll get into our first reading for this episode. This is Bury the Box by Letitia Payne, read by Michael Bird. Bury the Box by Letitia Payne. Drag your feet back to the house with the dead plants. Your heels sink awkwardly into the gravel as you walk up to the warmth of the porch light. Fumble with your keys at the door, buy some time. Play the day from the moment the fresh edge of the morning hit you until the half hour you spent listening to Mumford and Sons in your car after work. key clicks in the lock and you finally push the door open. Light floods onto the porch. Your daughter sits cross-legged on the living room floor with a shoebox resting on her lap. Tiny clusters of mould creep up at its sides. You stand there, keys dangling from your fingers, the mud from your shoes seeping into the welcome mat. She's clutching a Polaroid in her hand, image of a woman mottled by dust. You know this woman. The one who likes to sit on the edge of things. Always perched just out of your reach, in the corner of your eye. Your heart beats in your fingertips, each breath only reaches your teeth. The doors are locked in this house. You knew that when you hid the box in the trunk under the TV. This had felt safe, also less dramatic than burying the damn thing in the garden. How come I've never seen these before? she says, brushing aside the dust with her thumb. You want to scream at her to put it down, to get out, to go and do that assignment you know she stuffed into the bottom drawer of her desk. But you don't. They're of an old friend, haven't seen her in ages. Kick off your shoes, hang up your coat, find the routine again. Collect the photographs scattered across the carpet. Bundle them up into the memories they belong to. Put them back into the box. 
shut the lid on it. Feel her watching you as you do. She doesn't try to stop you. You can hear the sound of cupboards shutting and pans clanging against each other in the kitchen. As you inhale, you smell citrus and thyme filling the air. You should have buried the box in the garden. Walk loudly, but you need more ways to release frustration than thumping your feet against the carpet. Find more plants. Complain how they all die on you, no matter how much you water them or play classical music in hopes that Chopin can succeed where your nurturing has failed. Snap at your daughter more. There's always something eating at you, and soon she'll have to run out of answers. Make sure you avoid being in the same room as your husband. You feel like he can see every new line gilt has struck across your face. Sit on the bathroom floor with the shoebox by your side, your head resting back on the edge of the bathtub, eyes closed, the cool acrylic of the tub caressing the back of your neck. The heartbeat you felt in your fingertips is everywhere. Thighs, your brow, the back of your tongue. Think of her again, the woman on the edge. If you try, you can still feel the hair on your fingers, the burnt copper of it all. On that first morning, you'd noticed how her freckles stretched like constellations across her shoulders. You'd made coffee, you'd sat on the nightstand growing cold. She told you she wanted to be a photographer. She liked catching people off guard. You cringed at that, but she became one anyway. The photographs don't do her justice. She'd always talked of taking you to Athens. She showed you pictures of buildings in the yellow and peach hues, the balconies with their emerald railings like vines sprouting from stone. Try to imagine the warmth of the sun on your face, the humidity in the air, your flushed cheek resting in her palm. Someone taps on the bathroom door. Did the food not agree with you? You hear the gentle thud of his forehead against the door. Oh, no, I'm fine. Just shaving my legs. I'll be out in a minute. All right, I'm just going to head to bed. He says in a long exhale. Okay, night. Night. There's a shuffle on the other side of the door, followed by the sound of his slippers padding away. Release the breath you didn't realise you were holding. Sit there as panic filters from your limbs. Remember to shave your legs. On your way to your bedroom, you pause at the top of the landing. The door to your daughter's room is ajar. When you look inside, you expect to see the steady rise and fall of her chest beneath the winter quilt. Instead, she's lying there awake in the dark, eyes wide, looking back at you. You put the box in the shed the next morning. It's covered by a stack of damp moving boxes he keeps on telling you that you'll need again. Your daughter is sitting at the kitchen table with two freshly bleached strands of blonde in her hair. She never acknowledges when you enter a room, no matter how heavy your feet. But today she looks up from the blue glow of her laptop screen. Morning, she folds down the screen. There are a few remnants of crusted sleep in the corners of her eyes. They're accompanied by the grey shadow of yesterday's mascara. Your hair will fall out soon, is all you can think to say. She blinks, recoiling slightly. You see her chewing the inside of her cheek. When you sit down at the table with her, it's one of those rare moments she doesn't get up to leave. You pick a splinter jutting out from the tabletop. Probably, she tucks a blonde strand behind her ear. Mum, about yesterday. Go wash your face. 
Don't look at her. Focus on the splinter. Curl your hands into fists so that she can't see them shake. The legs of her chair scrape against the tiles of the kitchen floor. She doesn't say goodbye and neither do you. At work, your colleague touches your wrist. She says you're not yourself. Say that you're tired. You've been thinking about the box all day, the rainwater seeping through the lid, the mould creeping up cardboard. It's punctuated every stroke of your fingers across your keyboard. She tells you that teenagers are always difficult, that hers have gone to university and so will yours. That evening, as you wipe your shoes across the welcome mat, she tells you that she's gone to stay with a friend. You hate the relief that washes over you as he says it. There is peace in the desolate house, but it feels foreign. There is no pillar to hell your frustration or no eye to the storm. You drift in and out of her room like a, like a ghost. Try not to be drawn to the shed. Read a book, the one that you've been carrying around in your bag for months. Inners of my soul, with all the folded page corners and the frayed edges from where I took it to the bath with you. The way you treat your books annoys your daughter. Sometimes she slips her receipts from the corner shop into one of your folded pages. But you like books when they feel your thing. You can smell the musk of the tattered pages as you lift it out of your bag with the loose small pieces at the bottom. Sit on the edge of your bed. It envelops you. There, stuck with the corner of white tack to the page you last read, is a Polaroid. Your heart claws up your throat, desperate to catch a glimpse. Peel it off the page with caution. Place your thumb over the clear streak where the dusk has been wiped clean. When you flip it over, you feel the sickening crescendo of panic begin to build once more. There's a note. You know the handwriting as if it were your own. It's okay. That's it. That's all it says. And you remember your daughter with her feet folded beneath her on the living room floor. Faded fragments of you in her lap. Guilt sits beside you on the bed. You feel his weight sinking into your mattress. It's pulling you. Lean into it. Think of her sliding the photograph into her jumper sleeve as you snatched up the pieces. Perhaps she spent hours looking at it, tying it all together, or maybe she knew from the moment she opened the box. You remember her lying awake at night as you peered into her room. The floor creaked as you tiptoed away. For once, you tried to silence the sound of your feet on the carpet. That was Bury the Box by Letitia Payne. Next up is Unpopular Opinions by Matthew Stanley. Read by me. Matt, you're buzzing, she said, concern laced to every word. I was. Ah, fuck. I sighed and stubbed another dream I never remember out into the bedsheets. Zzzz. Mum. Zzzz. Matt, it's Mum. Fair to hear. It's your dad. Strips of moonlight are trying to help me find my phone in the disorientating black. My fingers manage only to disturb the ornamental steroid cream that now lives beside the bedside table. Hello? Croaks. Cleared my throat. Hello? Grew, as if I suspected an imposter on the other end. Hello, it's Mummy, answered a thin voice. It's your dad. Close. I swallowed. I felt... okay. Ah, oh, shit. I said. Is... 
is he what what's he isn't coming back this time and I took a deep breath Dia put her hand on my leg I could feel her looking at me with pity in the dark and I found it so irritating I'm not right sometimes we're at the hospital said mom royal 6b in the family room Alright, I replied to the unasked question. I'll be a couple of hours. Used to be when you hung up a phone, it made a noise. Are you okay? My dad's dying there. I said like an asshole, punishing her for the hand on my leg. I'm sorry, she replied unfazed. Do you want me to come with you? No, it's fine, I said mum. Swinging my skinny sticks out into the small hours of spring. Come see us later. I felt okay. I felt okay on the bus. I listened to music and thought of other things. I felt okay waiting for the lift at the foot of the towered wards. Inside, there was enough graffiti to keep me out of my head for the 30-second ascent. Thankfully, no one got in. I didn't want to feel compelled to smile. I wanted to do literally anything else. I felt okay on the landing, too. At least until I thought about the last time we spoke. Oh, hello, son, he said. Alrighty, pops, I replied. It's weird you being here. We give these guys our sister scopes. He didn't reply. Didn't seem like he'd heard me, even. He looked like someone had sewn his skin around the skeleton of a smaller man. How are you feeling? I asked. Hmm? How are you feeling? I repeated, louder. He'd had the same hearing aids for years, and they'd seemed more prop than assistance for most of those. Oh, you know, he said. I didn't. I never wanted to, either. Joanna works here? He asked. No, Dad. I do. Oh, yes, said with a nod. Eighty-nine years, and he'd only aged in the last two months. Pepper's missing you, I told him. Keeps looking for you around the house. The dog, he replied. Your mum will look after him. You won't miss me. The casual acknowledgement of his mortality choked me. I shook my head, because he couldn't have been more wrong. I hope he didn't really think that. How's Dare? He asked. He never got confused about Dee. I thought about the sweetness that could create such a connection to someone he'd rarely seen. It hurt my guts. The door opened. I was on the landing, feeling okay. Oh, hello, said the nurse. Are you here to visit? My mum. She told me she's in the family room. Ah, Mr. Stanley, she said as gravity took a greater hold of her face. I nodded. She smiled, pity perfected, pointed towards an area of hall. Second door on the right. Just go in. No one will disturb you. I felt okay. My mum's face was puffy from the hours that weeping had stolen from sleep. 
I hugged her close and tight like we never do, and she shook as tears dampened my shoulder. It's okay, I said over and over, having apparently convinced myself that it was. My sister was at the window, looking out over a city waking up. She was cradling an arm into her stomach, a palm over trembling lips, delicate fingers rippling cold on their surface. I joined her at the window with my arms out, and I held her too. It's okay, I said. My mantra, if you say something enough times, it might become true. What happened? I asked. Mum answered behind me. I was asleep, she said. He must have gone to the toilet, but had trouble putting his pyjamas back on. He woke me up, fitting. For a moment, I was my mum, roused by the sounds of a body rejecting itself. Waking into nightmare, forty years of love at the foot of a bed, exposed, undignified, unrecognisable, a violent structure of angles and catheter banks, a life struggling to free itself from a broken host. Fuck. I felt okay. A door opened. You can come see him now said a voice I can't place. Where is he? I asked Mom. In the ward. With everyone else? She shrugged. I felt okay. The five sixths of the ward, uncontained by green curtain, guided us to his bed with their eyes and clamped smiles. I prepared for shock. But even after the grey-skinned paternal imposter yawned at me a few times, I still felt okay. We put on our blinkers and sat down. To watch, apparently. Three doctors, well-versed in death, appeared from the wings for the final act of their theatre of response. Feet were poked. Lights were shone in eyes. It was demonstrated how heavy an arm was, devoid of life. I'm not sure what we'd done to offend them so much. He's fucked, the doctor didn't say. You should probably sit in this box and watch him fade away. My mum and sister nodded. I felt angry. So what now? I asked. I think we just wait, replied my sister. For what? I said, like an asshole again. She shrugged and a tear fell out of her eye. I'd made her cry. I felt annoyed again. Then okay. Joe, I'm I'm sorry, I said. Ignore me, I'm just upset. It's just this this all just seems cruel. She nodded. I need to ring work, I announced, standing up. You want a coffee? Mum? They didn't. I'd get them one anyway. You take as much time as you need, she said. We can cover you for at least this week. Thanks, I replied. My eyes stung. I'd never been very good with people being kind to me. Me, three coffees and a thin smile rode the elevator wishing I'd taken the stairs. Going up? Smile. I hate lifts. Smile. Well, this is me. Smile. 
When I got back to the ward, they'd moved my dad's imposter to a side room so he could spectate his indefinite death with more privacy. You really should get some fresh air, I said to my mum. I just don't want to leave him, she said, crumbling on the last word. I sighed and put an arm around her shoulder, pulling her close. You're not leaving him, I told her. This isn't him any more than the window sill is or, or the door. And I know that sounds horrible. It feels horrible to say, but it's true. It can't be healthy for you or anyone to, to, to have to sit here and punish ourselves like this. I refuse to remember him like this. I refuse to believe he'd even want this. I know I wouldn't. Dad's not... That that's not in there anymore. He's everywhere else. He's in your mind now. He's in mine. He's exactly how you remember him. And he always will be. He's inside everything that's alive. Because, because you can put him there. You look at my face, he's there. He's in Joe and the boys. In Pepper, like Max. Like how you remember Max. I just... I, I mean... Why do we do this? Who does this benefit? I don't think it demeans Dad to not force ourselves to be here. I know he would agree. I... It's... It's... It's it's fine. I'm sorry. I sat down and watched the imposter yawn. Ten minutes later, my mum stroked my hair and went to make some phone calls. My sister went to buy some cake. D turned up and we went for a walk. I felt okay. Felt okay when I went back to work. I felt okay in New York. Felt okay speaking at his funeral. I felt okay. I feel okay. I still feel okay. But I worry about that time when I don't. Once again, that was Unpopular Opinions by Matthew Stanley. Before we move on to our final piece for this episode, I'd like to take a moment to shine the spotlight on another creative venture, The Wondrous Reel. The Wondrous Reel is a bi-monthly online fiction magazine focused on finding the magic within the reality we live in. Accepting submissions of fiction, poetry and visual art, they are looking for writing and art that entwines the marvellous with the mundane and uses it to convey a message. You can find out more about The Wondrous Reel by following them on Twitter, at The Wondrous Reel Mag, or at their website, wondrousrealmag.com. Next up, we have The Thirteenth Story by Joe Gibbs, read by Ben Morley. The Thirteenth Story by Joe Gibbs Being crucified was nowhere near as painful as Sonny had always suspected it might be. True, whatever drugs his abductor had pumped into his veins, likely dulling the intensity of the experience somewhat, but watching the second stake being driven through his right hand, he felt no more than a peculiar ache as the bone split to make way for the iron. He let his head fall to the left where he saw his other arm pinned outwards. Stake blasted through the palm until it protruded from the underside of the wood. His fingers had closed reflexively around the cold head of the stake, 
like the legs of a dead, monstrous tarantula. The hooded man stood from his work and backed away into the shadows. Sonny watched them go, inevitably drawn to the tattoos adorning his own naked body. But to call them tattoos in the plural sense would be a mistake, because there is not an inch of natural skin to be seen, from ankle to neckline and from shoulder to wrist. Even his genitals, exposed and shriveled and terrified as they were, had colours sewn into them, finalising the illusion. Sony wore a single, impeccable suit of ink, and he was criminal for doing so. The practice of tattooing, along with all other creative outlets, was outlawed sometime around 2030. The illegalisation of arts had of course, driven its creators underground, in turn helping to read a new, starving type of collector with a limitless appetite for outlawed creations. A young child could now be traded on the black market for a collection of Shakespeare. And there was yet another sub-niche of collectors, hungrier still, who sought the more extreme pieces for their homes. As Sonny recalled the incalculable, burning, exquisitely painful hours spent under the needle over the course of his life as an outlaw artist, the backs of his knees, shaft of his cock, the pits of his arms, the rings of his nipples, he now realized he'd fallen into the hands of a latter type. Now the fear started to fill him like he was being force-fed a gallon of it. The shadows of a large, unfamiliar room were smashed up against the wallpaper, creating surreal angles and making a mockery of the rules of geometry. As he tried to lift his head, he swooned, nearly vomiting at the sudden silvery stink of his own sweat and blood. This was some schizophrenic nightmare, wasn't it? Not a real event, surely. Not death come to meet him beyond Sony's feet. He saw thirteen enormous black forms. Disciples, were they? Come to watch with interest. There was a movement at his head now. The collector bent down and gently stroked Sonny's lank hair from his eyes. He edged out a trembling hand and ran it along Sonny's inner bicep, dirty fingernails brushing the intertwined leaves and roses. Now he was shuffling down the length of him on his knees, his cold touch still on Sony. Story. The last of us called our bodysuits our stories, and he means reading mine now like a blind man reading Braille. Delirious. I'm delirious. Skin running down his torso, fingers rifling over the black jaguar, sneaking a look from his jungle home on Sonny's abdomen. Down his inner thigh now, and brushing over the weaving of roots there, coming to rest finally, with a black viper coiled on his kneecap. Remarkable, the collector whispered from his hood, that such images were once created on the flesh. Sonny heard the whisper of a knife being drawn from cloth. You are a piece of history. The accent was warped of both travel and heritage, untraceable. By far the most beautiful of all. And what a story yours has to tell. The man stood and walked the thirteen lumbering shapes, 
Sonny watched through slit eyes, gritted teeth, realized they were not hooded figures, but objects. The collective began to pull at the shadows. Thirteen heavy covers were thrown to the floor, revealing thirteen large glass cabinets. The final one, on the far left, stood empty. Sony knew what was propped in the others. Even in the shadows, he recognized the tiger on the abdomen of skin number four, matching with the position of a jaguar on his own. Sony himself had tattooed it on a man two decades ago, and he, jaguar on Sony. Brothers in arms once, soon to be reunited. The collector cocked his head. There's no need to cry. After all, you'll be immortal. Imagine the pleasure you'll bring when you join them as my 13th story. And then he was at Sony's nailed right hand, the knife beginning its work at the ink wrist, peeling the skin of his knuckles back like a clementine. All Sony could do was laugh at the irony of the whole situation. Back in the old days, when they said 13 was lucky for some, they weren't fucking about. <laughs> and anyway, being skinned was nowhere near as painful as you'd always suspected it might be. So that was the 13th story by Joe Gibbs, and we're actually here with Joe Gibbs now. We're going to ask him a couple of questions about the story and a little bit about maybe where it came from and where it might have gone in the time since then. So, Joe, if you'd like to introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about you. Yeah, hi, I'm Joe Gibbs. I'm uh, currently a data manager at a construction company. I'm also trying to write as much as I can in any amount of free time that I get currently, mm-hmm. which is a lot of free time, obviously, with, with COVID and not being able to venture out at the weekends or anything like that. So, yeah, I wouldn't say a blessing, but I'm trying, mm-hmm. to, trying to make it work as best I can. So evidently the 13th story is a bit of a, a unique piece in its own regard, and it seems to have a lot of backstory that the, the piece itself doesn't tell us. So would you mind telling us what inspired the piece? Yeah, of course. So a few years back, I was speaking to a close friend who recently had sort of all of his chest and front of his front of his chest and body sort of tattooed. Mm-hmm. I said to him, oh, you know, was it painful? And um, I think he was lying when he said it, but he sort of come back and said, oh, it wasn't, it was never as, it wasn't as painful as, as he'd always suspected it might be. Ah, yeah, so, so, yeah. I, so I think you're lying, first of all, but mm. it's actually quite like an interesting way of putting it. So, so it got me thinking, what, what other things are quite painful that we can actually turn around and say, oh, but they're not, you know, paradoxically? Yeah. And I thought, you know, being into my horror and a bit of a horror road, so I thought, yeah, what, what about being nailed to a cross? So, <laughs> yeah. Um, so I had a sort of a, a paragraph done of the first draft, mm-hmm. um, completely ran out of ideas sort of shelved it and then about a year later I saw uh, an online writing competition and the only brief was they wanted a thousand word story on based on the subject of 13 mm-hmm. so I thought oh, okay yeah we'll see what I've got in my first drafts and I went back to, to this, this you know this this initial paragraph I had um started writing and, and the whole thing just sort of came out in in one go as is so often the sort of, sort of, yeah <laughs> exactly so it sort of, it sort of worked in my favor and then after the polish it turned out as it did yeah, yeah, and, and turned out well it did as well. Thank um, <laughs> Question from my personal reading of it is um, related to the crucifixion. Was there a reason you went for a crucifixion? Because obviously the character, the collector, skins people for their artwork. 
What did the crucifixion have particular symbolism behind it, or was it just something you went for because, as you said, something that is very I'll painful sort of... that we can trick ourselves into not thinking so? That's it, yeah. Mm. But what can I make extreme? Like, well, we know it should be extremely painful, then mm. and sort of describe, put it into a into a story that we can make it not painful. Obviously, that that sort of he's been drugged, so that's it's sort of made it not as painful. Yeah. Um, and then sort of coming on from that, you know, I think one of Jesus' disciples was skin, so it almost made me think, okay, what what sort of imagery can we get in there that relates to that? When I was writing it at the time, there wasn't sort of any explicit um, religious connotation, but. I think, you know, as a writer, these, these things just sort of come together and, and you, you almost go with the flow, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's the best explanation I've got for that. Well, that's fair enough. Have you continued to work on it at all since then? Like, expanded on the universe? Or is it? have you just completed it and then happy with that, shelved it? Yeah, so I, like I said, I completed it for the, for the initial writing competition based mm. on the 13 thing, sent it out, and Sod's Law... Didn't get any response. It didn't get anywhere. Yeah. Um. I, I sent it out to a few other places and banded fiction. Luckily, you know, they, they decided to publish it, which I was very grateful for. Mm-hmm. Normally, I do find if, I, if I've got a story, I think I, I'm always tinkering with it until it gets to the point where it's been accepted somewhere. And then I finally think, okay, it's done. I can I can put that aside and, and leave that as it is. Mm-hmm. Um. I am, I am currently working on a bunch of short stories that are all sort of set in the same fictional town and all and all linked together through the same characters mm. um and this story the 13th story is is going to try and feature that in there mm-hmm. um so it's finished in the sense of i'm not going to redraft it again i'm quite happy how it is um yeah i would i would love to definitely sort of see it in a collection with, with some others that, that relate with the thing yeah so you continue to expand on the universe just not the piece itself absolutely yeah that's it you sort of answered the next question, kind of, you touched on it, which was, in continuing to work on the universe, have you changed anything? And if you could go back and rewrite the piece, is there anything you would change about it? Oh, that's a typical one. I think whenever <laughs> yeah, you that's do an interview read question, stuff, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, like I said, for me, a story is never, ever really finished, you know? Mm. Um, you always go back and think, oh, maybe you should have filled out that character a bit more. Uh, you know, I think where it, it works quite well is just about, well, I think it's about a thousand words. It works well as it is, sort mm-hmm. of, as a short bit of a shock piece in a sense. But I think, yeah, I think if I was to go back and do it, I'd like to develop that because of the character of Sonny and then obviously the collector as well. So who knows, you know, there might be sort of a follow up story if there is a collection, maybe like a bit of backstory or, you know, or a, a sequel piece in a sense to see what happened to the collector. Yeah. As I find the idea of the of a world where art is outlawed extremely interesting I, I would be very interested in seeing more of that world even if it's not through Sonny's eyes or the collector's eyes yeah. just that that universe in general sounds extremely interesting yeah definitely nice. last two questions then as a now published writer yourself do you have any advice for other authors that are aspiring to get published just starting out or don't know where to start any, any advice at all yeah, so I think what works for me is trying to make a habit out of writing. So whether that's an hour in the morning or if you're, if you're a night owl, you know, an hour at night. Mm. I know a lot, a lot of people are working at home at the moment, so maybe in your lunch break it's, it's, it's easier than ever mm. um, to sort of get into it. All you need is, what, a pen and a paper or a laptop or whatever. It's, it's, just, it's just making a habit out of it. I feel a bit of a hypocrite saying that myself because I'm, I'm more of a creature of impulse than habit. So <laughs> I'll have weeks where... I know I should be writing, but mm. I just can't bring myself to do it. But then mm. I know in a, in a week's time or another week's time, for instance, mm. I'll, I'll be able to do sort of 2,000 words a day and 
and, and get it done like that. So it's, it's, I think, making a habit out of it, but also making a habit that works for you. you know, yeah. Don't beat yourself up just because, you, you know, you might not have done something for two, three days. Um, that's not, you know, it's not a reason to beat yourself up. I think, I think also another good tip is just to be resilient because I think there's a lot of aspiring writers out there that will probably relate. You know, you'll, you'll sort of see magazines, submissions online you, you can submit to or, or competitions and you'll send stuff out. And a lot of the time you won't even get a response back to see if you've been successful. Mm-hmm. And even when you do, it can just be a standard template email to say, um, you know, sorry, it's not right for us at this time. You know, please submit again without any sort of feedback at all. So it's just, you know, it's just taking those in your stride and I think being resilient and, yeah, just keep sending stuff out there. And, you know, eventually, I think, I think eventually we'll find the right audience. Wise words, thank you very much. And the final question is: uh, Is there anywhere else we can find your work, like online or in in paper? Um, so I've had two pieces with Bandit Fiction. Um, I have had a story published by Early Works Press in an anthology called Sorcery of Smog. Mm-hmm. I think last time I looked, I think that was available on Amazon actually. So I've, I've got a story called Cannibal in there. And I've also had uh, two pieces published in Reuters Forum magazine. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's a few out there. I think that the rest of them are sort of in the manuscript in my, in my desk drawer at the moment while I'm doing my <laughs> final drafts for this collection. Yes. But with a bit of luck in the future, at some point, there'll be, there'll be a book out there. Fantastic. Well, I personally look forward to seeing that. As I said, I, I found the world that you wrote about in the 13th story fascinating. Oh, it's good to hear. Thank you. Appreciate that. And that brings us to the end of this interview. So that was Joe Gibbs with an interview about the 13th story. Thank you very much for joining us, Joe. Perfect. Thank you for having me. That brings us to the end of episode two. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you've enjoyed the stories we've brought to you today. And if you have, please like, share, review, and generally help us bring these amazing works to as many people as possible. If you're interested in reading more of the stories and poems we've published, or just want to find out more about what we do, head over to our website at www.banditfiction.com. Thank you once more, and we'll see you again next time.